Please be seated. Let us pray. Lord, open your word to our lives and our hearts, and open our lives and hearts to your holy word. Amen. I've seen two adverts on the uh, TV recently that are very different, but they use exactly the same imagery to make the same basic point. Both feature a parent and a child. In the first, there's a mother who is sat on a sofa watching the TV and she drags deeply on a cigarette. And then across the room is a young son who is watching her, not the TV. And as she puts her fingers to her lips with the real cigarette, the young lad goes like this with, at least for the time being, an imaginary one. And then the second advert is where a father is fishing and it's outdoors and it looks idyllic and there he is throwing his line in and his young son is stood next to him with a slightly shorter rod trying to do much the same thing and father does this and son does this and the end of it I think it's an advert for bank or money. The father comes along and holds the rod and starts to show the young son how to fish. The power of influence the power of influences, the power of models and mentors in our lives. What Paul is saying in this passage late on in this book of Philippians, first of all, and keep your uh, order of service open so you can keep looking at this short passage, is basically who are your models? And he's making a brave and bold claim. He's saying, if you want good models, follow me as your model and those who are like me. Because as the two adverts show us, there are good models and there are poorer models. There are good ways to follow and there are poorer ways to follow. If you like Paul's language, there are models that aid us being in Christ and aid us getting to heaven, and there are models that don't aid us deepening our life in Christ and effectively take us away from our pursuit of heaven. Nearly all parents do it. We've done it in our family to our three boys at various times. Sit down, I want to talk to you. I don't like you going around with that gang. They're bad influences. Or, I do wish you would go to that church youth group. There's some lovely boys and girls there. Sotto voce, just the type I'd like you to meet. Influences. Now Paul's quite clear. And he makes it clear earlier on in Philippians that salvation is a gift from God. You don't earn it. It's given to you. God's gift and God's love comes through Jesus Christ for once, for all, on a cross. And it's given. But then Paul says, once you've recognized that that's a gift, 
You must then live the rest of your life in a way that bears out that gift, in a way that honors the gift, in a way that takes you to heaven, not further and further away from the fruits of what Christ has died to bring about in your life. Choose your influences carefully. Choose your models well. Now the background of this is that in Philippians, and in fact in a number of Paul's letters written in the New Testament, there are some groups going around in the earliest church communities who are not preaching a gospel that Paul recognizes as being right and authentic. Uh, there's one group that we're going to call them the legal party. Paul notes in Philippians earlier on in chapter 1 and 2, a group that he says are enemies of the cross. Wow, that's a bad influence. An enemy of the cross. That is, they, they take heaven further away from you rather than nearer to you. And they're called... Uh, in the various places in the New Testament, the Judaizers. Not Jews, Judaizers. This is uh, a particular group, they're referred to in Galatians as the circumcision party. And it's the same group of people, and put very simply for this morning, they're going around essentially saying to fledgling Christian congregations in the Greco-Roman world this... You must become a Jew in order to become a Christian. In fact, in order to become a Christian, you've got to first become a Jew. And therefore, you've got to submit to all the rituals and all the actions and all the words of a Jew. And then, if you like, you tack on the bit that says, and Jesus is the Messiah who we've been waiting for. And they were legalists in the sense that they turned around and said, you do it this way, and if you don't do it exactly this way, then it doesn't count. And if you do it a different way, then God's not going to listen to you. And if you use different rituals and different words, then you might as well not bother speaking them, because this is the right way. And in times in Christian history, there have been those who took the same view about legalistic matters. One of the issues that figured in the long disputes making up the Protestant Reformation that rumbled on really throughout most of the 16th century was about the status of the words said in Holy Communion. Some, mainly but not all Catholics, said the Mass if it was to be spiritually effective, if bread and wine were to turn into the body and blood of Christ, then it had to be said by an ordained priest saying it exactly right. This was referred to, for those of you who like Latin if you don't forget it, this was referred to as the phrase ex opere operato which simply means by the doing of the words, by the very saying of the words, this thing becomes true. It was a very legalistic view of Holy Communion. 
And some Protestants took exception to this and pointed out that as far as they were concerned, getting the words absolutely right was far less important than the fact that the priest had to be in a spiritually good state to perform the Mass and that recipients of Holy Communion had to be in the right spiritual state to receive the benefits of it. And they said that's far more important than stumbling over a word or changing this phrase or that phrase. And to, to give them their due, the Catholic scholars said to them, you're absolutely right, these things are very important. But unless it's done exactly like this in a church like ours by a priest that we've approved, you might as well forget it. It's not the means of grace. Legalism is said by Paul to be an enemy of the gospel in that it doesn't help you receive Christ, nor is it a model that gets you to heaven. Now, that's one group that Paul got quite angry about. The other group, and he's referring to them here in Philippians chapter 3 and 4. He doesn't mention them by name here much, but the whole book's written in the context of trying to address what they're saying. In this particular passage, Paul warns of another model of life, which is an enemy of the cross, that serious phrase again. And they are called, forgive the long word, I'll explain this in a minute for those who don't like it, they were called the antinomians, which is best easily remembered by the people who are against the making of laws. They're as far away from being legalists as you can be. Here's the group that say we have laws, we have laws for everything, everything must work exactly as the law says, word perfect. And then over here you've got a group that says, ah, I don't like, don't like laws. Chill. Just relax. Well, so far so good. They're known as the Freedom Party. But they went around saying something like this which sounds attractive, but remember, is an enemy of the cross. You see, what's really important is my spiritual inner relationship with God. And I've got to tell you that, you know, my spirit is one with God's spirit. I'm really spiritual. Wait for it. So you see, God doesn't really mind what I do with the rest of my life. God's not bothered what I do with this corrupt body. He's not bothered about where I spend my time. He's not bothered really whether I go to the courts. He's not bothered whether I use prostitutes because it's, it's spiritual what I'm about. I'm free of all that legalistic rubbish. Christ has made me free. Paul may have had in mind Gnostics, with a G, Gnostics, who uh, became quite influenced and influential in early Christianity and brought that, that kind of parody that I brought you this morning into the Christian church. My relationship with Christ is mystical, it's deep, it's spiritual, and therefore God's not really bothered with the rest of it. I can do what I like. Many of us will know the phrase, so earthly minded to be no earthly use. So heavenly minded to be no earthly use. Yeah? And what we mean by that is, here's the person who learns that your washing machine has broken down and says they'll pray for it to be mended, but doesn't offer to take the washing. Now something similar is going on here. 
The Gnostic Christians were going around and saying, what I do, how I live is of no consequence to God. God's not bothered about that. And Paul refers to these freedom party as those who have no law. Now, notice that in this passage, that both legalists on the one side and the lawlessness on the other though very different, almost opposites from one another in the way that they understand their lives, they have one thing in common, and it's the very thing that Paul now focuses upon. They live their lives in a way that rejects or opposes the lordship of Jesus Christ over the whole of life. Body, mind, spirit. Money, resources, time. The whole kit and caboodle. In Galatians, Paul got angry with the legalists, possibly because as a learned Jew himself, he felt passionately that they were abusing the interpretations of the law that he knew so well. Here in this passage, he gets almost upset with the antinomians in the church. He says, I tell you that they're they're against the cross. I tell you this with tears. Look at what a wreck of the Christian church these people are making. Their understanding of how to live their lives won't help them get to heaven. Ultimately, what they're about is satisfying their own desires, doing what they like, rather than sharing in the sufferings of Christ. They're more wedded to earthly things. They're not building up treasure in heaven. Now, In case you haven't noticed, but I'm sure you have, there are legalists and antinomians in the church today. In fact, there are legalists and antinomians in every church today, including this one. We reduce our Christian lives to legalism in all sorts of sometimes incidental, even pathetically simple ways. If we don't sing that hymn to that tune, I don't like it. I don't think I'll be blessed. If the minister doesn't specifically mention X or Y or Z, then it's clearly not going to be blessed and it's not important. If I say that prayer exactly right, it will be more powerful and God's more likely to hear it. That's a subtle one. Or we profess to be good disciples where we're in fact antinomians. The law isn't for us. I will persist in this sin, but I'll keep praying for forgiveness straight afterwards and then it'll be all right. What I do with my money or my body or my time doesn't count as long as I say my prayers, as long as I turn up to church. Some scholars suggest that up to one-third of adults which includes Christian adults, yes, church, we're Christian and adult too, have a, they suggest that they have at least one thing in their life that is out of control at any point in time. That means that rather than them controlling it, whatever it is, it is controlling them. Slaves to consumerism, perhaps to a financial stability or a financial resourcing that goes far beyond what's actually necessary for a person who lives by faith in the Lord. 
That's for some of us. A lover of possessions that exceeds what's right for followers of one who had nowhere to lay his head. A lifestyle of convenience with the inevitable consequence that because I want it and I want it like that and I want it now, somebody elsewhere in the world is a slave to my commercial wishes. Or addiction to habits which we can break at any time we like if we really want to. As I heard someone say to me the other week, I can give up smoking any time I want. I've done it 25 times already. From gambling or drugs or sex or pornography, whatever enslaves you from, from what? Ultimately from acting and living as if Christ is Lord of it all. Every bit of it. And it's in that context that Paul finally starts to come to talk about citizenship in heaven rather than citizenship on earth. But there's a paradox, and I must move quickly through this. We'll look at this perhaps another time. But essentially what Paul is saying is that if you abide by the principles of being a good citizen of heaven, you will fulfill your responsibilities to be a good citizen on earth. If we're irresponsible citizens here and now, we won't be a responsible citizen in heaven. We're people who live with a current address. And our current address as a congregation is central London in England in 2016. And this and now is where we will be known as people who are either enemies of the cross or promoters of the glory of God. For how we live, how are the seers, what we know about ourselves when there's no one watching is about our citizenship in heaven. Because Jesus is Lord of earth and Jesus is the King of heaven. He's over it all. Is Jesus Lord of all for you? In the north of England, around Blackburn and Preston, there are still a couple of very large shoe shops. I think they are, or used to be called, Tommy Balls, though he has died. Sue's nodding her head. She's a good Lancashire lass. It's a kind of stack em high, sell em cheap kind of shoe shop. And I don't know whether they do it now, but years ago, they used to hang the shoes on the walls on pegs on the walls on a piece of string and they used to get the piece of string in fact she's showing us now they used to get an air gun and they used to fire the air gun through the heels on the back of the shoes and then tie the string and put them on the wall and then when you wanted a pair of shoes you just lifted them off the wall anybody been there good yeah frank I, frank you don't surprise me somehow <laughs> So you can always tell when someone's got a, a pair of shoes from Tommy Balls, because if you look very carefully, you've got a little hole through the heel. Have a look now. Just One day a man walks into Tommy Balls and plonks, that's a good Yorkshire word, plonks a pair of shoes on the customer service desk. I brought these back, he says to the salesperson. I can't walk right in them. Ah, I'm sorry about that, sir, says the salesperson. What seems to be the problem? Don't they fit? 
No, they fit fine. It's the string. It's not long enough. Think. So cut the string. Some of us need to cut strings. Strings to legalism and antinomianism. Strings that tie us to life which is an enemy of the cross. And some of us know we can't do that for ourselves any more than the man who brought the shoes back did. We need someone to do it for us to help us walk. I hope the saleswoman rolled her eyes when he put the shoes on there and said what he did, got some scissors out from behind the desk, pulled them open, gave them back to him and said, here you are, sir, I hope you'll be all right now. So as we walk through Lent, as we approach the Lord in bread and wine, we examine ourselves. We cut what we can that stops us walking. And what we can't do for ourselves, we genuinely ask the Lord to cut as we come in need again to his table. For we would choose in Lent that the Lord be Lord of all. Amen. So we sing as...